0: for some time, and will be for some time to come, the book of James, James's letter to uh, uh, Christians all over the world of the first century. We got to chapter 3, just a few verses, starting from verse 13. James says, "'Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom.'" But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Let's ask God's help to understand that, shall we? Lord, uh, thank you that you've given us minds to understand you. And you've given us your word, Lord, so that you can communicate to us. So, Lord, we pray that as we open this uh, sacred text, as we seek to understand it, that we would not only have understanding, Lord, but we would be changed in our hearts. Please then, Lord, give us an openness and an attentiveness towards you and your word that really makes our study of your word worthwhile. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The last hundred years has seen an absolute explosion of knowledge, hasn't it? There's actually a man that I know in a village in Cambridgeshire who told me that he can remember the first car driving down his street in that village. But in his lifetime... A generation ago now, he saw a man on the moon. We can uh, fly around the world in in, uh, no time at all. When uh, when he was a little boy, it would have probably taken longer for him to get to to France than it now takes for us to get to Australia. There were no antibiotics in his day either. When uh, he was born, Marconi, was just experimenting with uh, Morse code radio transmissions. But now, he's got a mobile phone that he can sit in his, in his deck chair in the garden and uh, ring his relatives in Australia with. The 20th century has seen a, just an explosion of knowledge and technological advance, hasn't it? And yet, you know, most uh, people who... Uh, observe Western culture, say that we are ending the century with a profound disillusion with that knowledge. Once there was such optimism about knowledge, once we felt that if we only understood a little bit more, then we would have the the key to how to govern society, how to cure all mankind's ills, how to have a happy life. But people no longer have that, that confidence Perhaps, for instance, in the field of medicine and biology, that's the most obvious at the moment. Every few months, it seems to me, there's some new medical or biological advance, cloning of Dolly the sheep, a woman of 60 who becomes pregnant, pregnant, genetically engineered food which becomes readily available. And for every one of those developments, there's a great upsurge of popular anxiety. We have a sense... But our technical abilities have outgrown our ability to make good judgments about how to use them. Our knowledge has outgrown our wisdom. And I have to say it's the same in the church. If you go into the shell, look at the shelves of Christian bookshops, they're lined these days with books about how to make your church grow. And up to a point. Actually, those techniques work. Sociologists have taught us to understand people and churches and uh, taught us how to manipulate them so that they do what we want. But a church that is built on technique may be big, it may even have the reputation of success, but it will be powerless. Most of all, it will be powerless in helping a world that senses it needs wisdom. Because actually, that church itself will have no profound wisdom to offer. And individuals as well, whose lives are just built on their abilities and their knowledge may look very good at first glance. But actually, their lives will turn out to be a hollow, worthless sham. This uh, world doesn't actually need any more knowledge. Having hard enough time trying to cope with the knowledge it's got at the moment, you and I particularly don't need any more knowledge on its own. We need wisdom. We need understanding. And James is quite clear in this passage. What marks out someone with wisdom? Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. It's not knowledge, he's saying, that marks out a wise person. It's lifestyle. How our world needs that. Now, by and large, people aren't persuaded by clever arguments these days. I doubt whether they ever were. They are persuaded by godly lifestyles. They are persuaded by people who can say, look at my life, look at its joy, look at its stability, look at my relationships. Now, listen to me. I will tell you why my life is like that. You know, Christian people like that can change the world. It's that godly lifestyle that James has been calling us to throughout this letter. If you've been here, you will know that. And here he says there are two specific things which characterize a person, a wise person. First of all, he says it's a good life spoken again and again about that, hasn't he? He's warned us about the way we speak. He's, he's urged us to care for those who are less fortunate than ourselves. He's warned us, do you remember, that to read the Bible without doing what it says is like uh, looking in a mirror and then forgetting what, what we see. And he's actually been frighteningly severe, hasn't he? He's described a sort of pseudo-faith in which our lives are not changed, and he's described it as worthless, dead. The epistle of James actually has a reputation of being an easy read about a practical Christian life. But I hope you see with me, it's not that, because James is urgently calling us to real faith, which changes us. A wise person now, he says, is a person who is characterized by their good life. And second, he says, they are characterized by humility. The humility that comes from wisdom, as James has put it here. I know a number of people over the last few weeks have been stirred up by some of the things that James has said. You could come away with the impression that he was fiercely opposed to his readers, with the starkness with which he voices his his, His warnings. It's almost as if he senses that. If you look back through the book, he's reassured us again and again, my brothers, he says, my dear brothers. He is speaking to Christians, but he doesn't want us to live with a blithe, superficial self-confidence. Because he says that is profoundly dangerous. And like a surgeon, he, he wants to wound us to heal us. He wants us to develop a deep sense of our need of God, our need for forgiveness, a sense that we don't live up to God's standards and need to go to him again and again and again. Christian is a paradoxical creature. They are at the same time secure of their, their salvation, and deeply aware of their need for God to work afresh in them again and again. Every day, Christians need to ask for forgiveness. Every day, they need to weep over their failings. Every day, they need to sense their unworthiness. Every day, they need to cry out to God saying, Lord, but for your mercy, I am lost. Someone who really knows God is always deeply, deeply Humble. They're not a doormat. They're not obsequious. There's no ostentatious self-denigration. Denis- they're, they're not weak and ineffectual, but there is a brokenness about them. There's a gentleness towards the others who, who are similarly broken. There is a willingness to weep over their own failings and those of others. It marks them out. James calls it the humility of wisdom. Jesus said, you, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. He's not calling people to rehearse a little speech, oh God, I'm unworthy, isn't this terrible? No, he's calling us, in fact, to lead lives that are both obedient, when we've done everything he says, and conscious as well, that even if we were Supernaturally obedient, still we would find that there is not sufficient worthiness for us to come and stand confidently in God's presence without mercy. Real wisdom is always humble. But James wants to warn us about something too. Here are two marks, he says, of wisdom. But there are lots of false wisdoms about, he says. They masquerade as true wisdom but they're nothing of the sort. Actually, in the rest of the passage, he is going to show us uh, uh, false wisdom and then true wisdom. We're going to ask three questions about each of them. First of all, about false wisdom. We're going to ask What's the origin of false wisdom? What are the characteristics of false wisdom? What's the fruit of false wisdom? If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. Notice what he says clearly about its origin. He uses three words to describe the origin of this false wisdom, which I think the NIV has been quite right to put in inverted commas to help us understand it. First of all he says it's earthly. In other words, it looks only at this world. Then he says it's unspiritual. That's very similar in meaning. It means looking only at this life, not considering spiritual life, the spiritual dimension of our lives. And then he drives it home, doesn't he, very firmly. He says it's of the devil. They're they're synonymous, those three characteristics of this false wisdom. It only looks at the world, it only looks at this life, and in the end, such wisdom is a servant of the devil. Then he says, let's, let's think about its characteristics for a minute. He says it's characterized by bitter envy, selfish ambition in our hearts. In other words, he says, we want to be top of the pile and we want to do anything we can to get there by our own guile and strength. And he says that will show itself almost invariably in two ways. By boasting, he says, and denying the truth. The NIV says don't boast about it, but I think it's better to say just don't boast actually no better way to, to advance yourself, is there, than to massage your CV, to allude to uh, all the famous people that you know, to tell people how successful you are. People make a whole living these days out of uh, helping you write good CVs. Professional trainers in boasting. And of course, uh, once we get involved in this sort of self-promotion, we always have to get involved in a little bit of lying as well. Bit of economy with the truth, a bit of subterfuge. That's a characteristic, says James, of false wisdom. And such behavior, he says, will always have the same fruit. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. A person's false wisdom may not be immediately obvious, he's saying. But Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. Somehow that always happens. Somehow they manage to attract bad relationships. Somehow evil seems to always happen around them, even though they deny that they've got anything to do with it. That is the fruit that wells up from within their life. Painful portrait, isn't it? It originates... Only in this, by only looking at this world and therefore being but tricked by the devil, it's characterized by narrow self-interest which leads to boasting and lies and its fruit is always disorder and evil. You know, this is a story written large in whole nations. Adam Smith's whole theory of economics could be characterized in this way. But it's the story written on the lives of countless individuals as well, (laughs) who don't know Christ, who know nothing of heaven. James, though, is talking about neither of those. James is addressing Christians. James is saying, Christians can be infected by this, too. And here's a young man or a woman who is converted at college, and while they were studying, they were so enthusiastic. They prayed, they talked about Christ, they were on fire for the Lord. In those circumstances, you know, the devil makes a tactical retreat. He knows he's lost, he doesn't try very hard sometimes. He waits. He waits for the moment they get their first job or take out a mortgage or have to move several times for their career so they have no church links, or go to a church which anyway they sense is not a patch on that great student church that they attended. And by the time that they are 30, all their decisions are based firmly on home and career and money and status. Such wisdom, says James, is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. Well, here's a church church leader or pastor. They love the church. They're eager to see the church grow, to fill with large numbers of people, to be evangelistically successful. But actually, not really because of his zeal for the Lord. Now, this person's eagerness comes much more from a desire for self-aggrandizement or power. And you can see it, for instance, when that church leader meets opposition or loses a place of authority in the church. Suddenly the mask comes off and they're fighting for power. Or you can see it when the pastor preaches, because always that person is trying to impress, always implying that his church is the only one worth going to the area on a good day, you might re—you might leave thinking, "What a great pastor!" But on—but on no day will you ever leave that church thinking, "What a great God!" Well, it's a real danger for us leaders to—I am so acutely aware of it. Scratch the surface, and most of us. And you will find underneath, struggling for ascendancy, bitter envy and selfish ambition. Churches that have strife in them, that are plagued with disorder and sin, always have those problems somewhere, this false, devilish, self-obsessed attitude. Sometimes it's very difficult to spot. It's not always the person or people who are the main focus of the problem or the real root of the problem, But if you see disorder and every evil practice, says James, you can bet your bottom dollar, you can trace it back to envy and selfish ambition. That is false wisdom, he says. Churches need to be so aware of it. Christians need to be so aware of it. Because James is talking to such. But then James gets on to true wisdom. And we're going to ask exactly the same three questions of this. What is its origin? What are its sticks? What is its fruit? Its origin, first of all. James is very clear, isn't he? Wisdom from heaven, he says it is. Or literally, wisdom from above. This is a wisdom quite opposite from the other because it doesn't look only at this world. It does not expect its answers only from this world. It's not constantly saying, how can I manipulate this situation to achieve what I think should be achieved? Rather, it says, Lord, how should I behave in your sight so that you can achieve what you want to achieve? It defies the laws of nature, actually, says James. The laws of nature are only concerned with this world. But, he says, wisdom that really is Christian wisdom expects intervention from outside. Because it knows that this world is not governed by the powers or the rulers that we see. It knows that God, the ruler on high, can overthrow kings in a moment. There is no other power that can stand in his way, and with that confidence, it says, "Let me seek heaven from uh, let me seek wisdom from that place. because that wisdom will last. And then James sketches out for us its characteristics. It's a very challenging list, isn't it? I've really. Uh, Struggled myself as, 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 as I prayed through this list. Wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure and peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. First of all, he says, of number one importance, it's Pure has the over- overtones of ceremonial purity there. The person with true wisdom, he says, is on good terms with God. They are practicing the discipline of seeking forgiveness of sins. They are, they are daily being renewed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And their life shows it, he says. Their stumbles are relatively rare, and when they happen, they are quickly corrected. You know when you met someone who, who knows God. And that purity, he says, infuses a gentleness into the soul of that person. They are peace-loving. They are considerate, submissive, full of mercy. They're not always pushing for their own way. They hate discord. They forgive often and quickly. And they think of others before themselves. But he says that person has steel too. That word translated impartial, actually is probably better translated unshakable. Absolutely solid, sincere determination to do God's will is found in that person. And when that steel shows through in that person, you know it. Because that person is overtly, Striving unshakably with pure motives to serve God to the utmost. They are sincere, he says. And that wisdom, that wisdom that comes down from heaven, that wisdom that is at the same time pure and gentle and absolutely rock solid, that wisdom will show its characteristic fruit as well. Verse 18. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Disorder and evil come from earthly wisdom, said James, but righteousness comes from heavenly wisdom. Strong, godly, upright lives are the product of that wisdom. Well, isn't that a beautiful picture? Those few verses. Doesn't it set your heart racing a little with excitement as you contemplate it? You know, We who struggle with so much impurity contemplate that wisdom from heaven which James says is first of all pure. We who so easily get involved in arguments and quarrels which achieve nothing. You know, imagine being filled in your heart with an even stronger desire for peace which overrules that argumentative spirit in us. Now we who often want to put ourselves first, imagine developing a reflex which always thinks of others, others first. Imagine being gentle and merciful and fruitful. Imagine being unshakably committed to God and his kingdom with absolute sincerity. That is what I'm calling you to, says James. And there is not a single one of us here who can sit back and relax and say, I've made it. I'm great. Is there? If we're honest. If you're sitting here thinking, I'm okay, I fit comfortably into this category of wisdom from heaven, I'm afraid it doesn't indicate that you're perfect. It indicates you're deceived. If you're sitting here thinking, I'm not perfect, but I'm good enough to not have to try too hard. And I'm afraid uh, it doesn't indicate that you're okay. It indicates you're in deep trouble. Because godliness is like riding up a bike up a long, steep hill. It is tough, but the destination is worth it. If you stop pedaling that bike, you fall off. If you feel you're freewheeling, I guarantee you one thing, you're going down the hill. No, this is a call that James calls us to most seriously. Perhaps you're sitting here feeling convicted. Perhaps you're feeling that urgent desire to have wisdom from above. Now, I've got for you, if that is in your heart, the best news you could ever have. You will not find this wisdom from within yourself but you will find it from God because God loves to give it freely to anyone who asks. God's determination, in fact, for Christians is to change them by infusing that wisdom from above. His whole purpose for the lives of Christians is to transform us in that way. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have an absolute assurance that one day you will be perfectly like that in heaven. But even more excitingly, you have the absolute assurance that if you ask for help for that now, he will give you that help. You will need to keep pedaling that bike. You will need to keep working your way up that hill. But he will help you every day as we ask him. He will give wisdom from above. Maybe that you're conscious that actually you've never really interacted with this sort of thing. You've actually lived your whole life just thinking about this world, just making decisions on the basis of what you see, on the basis of your physical need for food and comfort. You've never actually thought about sincerely asking God for help from heaven. If that's your situation, I have good news for you too. Anyone, at any time, including right now, can ask for that help, can actually come to God and say, God, I realize that all my life was oriented only around this world, that it was earthly, unspiritual, that I had been actually tricked by the devil himself and can say, please God, give me this wisdom from above. Please God, give me this wisdom that looks to eternity, that looks to my spiritual needs, that invests there, and issues in purity, and peace, and consideracy, and submissiveness, and mercy. Good fruit. unshakability, Sincerity. We can do it now, and I tell you, It is worth it. You have to start the cycling. You have to start heading up that hill. But it is full of joy, that path. Because it fills you from the inside out with real wisdom. You know, this world does not need any more knowledge particularly. But it needs wisdom. We do not need any more knowledge on its own, particularly. But we need wisdom. Whether you have known Christ for decades or whether you don't sense you know him yet, let me call you to this great path, discovering wisdom from above. You will be transformed. I absolutely guarantee it and your life will be filled with joy. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we each come to a passage like this with our own unique perspective. Some of us need our complacency knocked out of us. Because, Lord, complacency is such a dangerous disease. Some of us need our, our fear and our sense of failure <laughs> to be uh, submerged in the joy of asking and seeking and receiving wisdom from above. But all of us, Lord, need you to help us if we are to let this word from you change us. So, Lord, don't let any one of us leave here determined to forget what you have taught us. Stick it to our hearts, we pray, Lord. Prize open our selfish souls and let your love flow in. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.